Well, it's that time of year where we say goodbye to one and hello to another. Goodbye to 2014, hello to 2015. Well, we're just at the end of 2014, and man, what a year. We started Adventure Rider Radio about six months ago in mid-June, and this has been an incredible ride so far. We've had the honor of having top-notch guests on this show with incredible in-depth stories of travel and adventure and, of course, motorcycles. We've talked about the technical aspects of motorcycling right on to the esoteric about life on the road and how adventure motorcycling changes the rider. And on this show, we've had well-known adventure riders like Dave Barr, Dr. Greg Frazier, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, Carla King, uh, Rene Cormier, Simon Pavey from Long Way Round fame, Sam Manicom, Austin Vince, filmmaker with Mondo Enduro and Mondo Sahara, Simon and Lisa Thomas from To Ride the World, who've been on the road for, I think, 11 or 12 years now and uh, are very well known in the adventure motorcycling industry. Nick Sanders, the fastest man around the world who holds many long distance riding records. But not everyone has been famous who has been on the show, but they've all had one thing in common, and that's an incredible story. But likely what you don't know is what goes on behind the scenes at Adventure Rider Radio. And there's quite a bit of effort that goes into each one of these shows. I mean, besides all the technical aspects of recording and processing and web design, media distribution, there's a host of work goes into actually finding an interviewee, figuring out, do they have a story that suits what we're doing? And then contacting them, setting up the interview, recording the interview, editing it, and then building the show around it. It's a huge job, but we know it's worth it when we get emails and comments from listeners like you. And we've had plenty. And we're continually trying to make the show better with each and every episode. And we have right from the very start. And we'll continue that as we go. We are now exceeding 10,000 downloads a month. That's incredible. 10,000 downloads a month. It's only been six months. And now we're experiencing over 10,000 downloads a month. And it continues to rise. I mean, most podcasts don't even come close to that. So this is really exciting. And because it's the last show for 2014, what we're going to do today is what most everybody is doing this time of year. We're going to reflect on the year 2014. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, we got a good one for you today. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for listening. Yes, this is an exciting time of year. There's no doubt about it. Everybody gets so pumped up about the beginning of a new year. And you, you got to ask why? What's the big deal? You know, it's only a, another day, but... The idea is it's symbolic. It's January 1st. It's a brand new year. It's a time for new beginnings. It's a time for a fresh start. And it's also a time to stand there at the end of the year and look back and reflect upon the year that's passed. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back and look at some of the episodes we've done, and we're going to take little nuggets from those episodes and celebrate the fact that we had a great year. I mean, this was fantastic. And the nice thing about audio, the great thing about this is that we actually get to go back in time. We're not gonna stand here and look at photographs. We're gonna go back in time and listen to the voices of Adventure Rider Radio this past year. 
It was back in June 2014 when I was talking with Dr. Greg Fraser, and we were talking about packing. We were doing a show on packing and, and camping, and I was asking him, what does he think that people overlook the most when they're getting ready to pack up for their motorcycle adventure? They take too much. Uh, that, that's not overlooking. It's just that they think they're going to need it, and they carry it, and they find that uh, they haven't used it. Uh, I think the second uh, is they they pack their stuff and, and take off without really testing whether or not their their support system to keep it on the motorcycle is is good. Dr. Fraser had a very simple answer when I asked him about packing gear. Pack it light, and the second rule of thumb is pack it low. Now, you have to remember, we're talking to a guy who's been around the world, I think, at least five times, and he rides all different motorcycles on his trip. He's not riding the same bike all the time. So when I ask him a bit of information, you know, I really listen to his answer. And here I thought, well, you know, no matter what bike you're riding, if you were, you know, just given three things you could do, what would they be? I think top of the list would be a, a good set of tires. The second would be a, a good battery. And the third would be, uh, I don't know, a good suspension system. You know, something that's been discussed with virtually everybody who's ever been on our show, whether it's been left in the show or whether it's been edited out, we've always talked about adventure and the definition of adventure. And one of the common threads with everybody is pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. In other words, stretching yourself, you know, because if you're not stretching, they say, you know, you're dying. You're not growing, you're dying. And basically is, is what a lot of people say, especially motivational speakers. But it's pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because that's when you actually learn. Because inside your comfort zone, zone um well that's why you call it a comfort zone isn't it you know you're comfortable in there that's some that's things you can handle no problem at all it's pushing yourself just beyond that edge and then creating a little bit bigger comfort zone and then going a little bit further this was dave Barr's take on comfort zone is to not be in a comfort zone you're in a comfort zone you're, you're not you're not doing what you were put on this world to do you're just you're just coasting and uh, you know um but when you're out of your comfort zone you're operating at capacity and um, you know, and, and it's uh, yeah, and it's it's more the way that the the human uh, experience is is it becomes enlightened with life itself is by those, uh, you know, uh, pushing out of the comfort zone, certainly, absolutely. And part of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone can also be uh, when you're trip planning. I mean, a lot of people will sit back and say, well, the time's not right, or, or maybe they're asking other people, when is the time right? How do I know when I'm ready? Well, Rene Cormier had an interesting take on that. Well, one of the things that I've realized is there's, there's no perfect time to take a trip. That, that's, a, that's a big one for me. There's not going to be a time when, when my planets aligned and I had the correct bike with the correct helmet and the correct jacket and the correct boots and the correct camera. That stuff doesn't exist. And, and, and once you leave North America, nobody cares what kind of stuff you have or what color your bike is or which version of your MacBook. That, that stuff is, is, is completely inconsequential. We think it's important because we're surrounded by people telling us it's important while we're here. But once we leave, you get the glorious weight off your shoulder and nobody cares about your stuff. Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited is a regular on our show. And every time I speak with him, I, I learn so much. The, the guy is just a wealth of knowledge. And often he just tosses these little things out that, oh, yeah, well, you, you might want to consider this. And uh, this little excerpt is um, we were talking about uh, tr visiting countries that you recommended not to and how, you know, that can open up your eyes and, and give you an experience. I recently spoke with Austin Vince, who said something similar. He said, find a place your country tells you not to visit and go there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have to put a little caveat to that. 
you if you go to a country that, that your country tells you not to go to, your embassy won't necessarily help you if you get into trouble there. And your insurance may be invalid. Health insurance can be invalid if you go to a country that your country tells you you can't go to. So you do have to be a little careful. You see, two incredible nuggets of information there that most of us don't think of. And uh, boy, you get somebody like Grant with all his experience and he just sort of tosses it out there as if it's a, a little extra. Yeah, you, you might want to consider this. So, And you know what? I do like Grant's take on his definition of adventure. What do you consider adventure? Anything that's one step farther than what you did yesterday. That's it. It's all an adventure doing anything a little bit more difficult or a little bit farther or a little bit stranger than what you've done before, that's an adventure. That's that's all there is to it. It doesn't have to be anything specific. It doesn't have to be any specific definition. I think just do a little more than what you've done before, and that's a good enough adventure for anybody. Grant and I went on to talk about uh, prepping a bike for adventure, and I was surprised at his answer when I asked him about, you know, a basic mods that he would do to any bike, and he went right to it. He didn't hesitate. When prepping a bike to go on some sort of adventure, whether it be across Canada, around the world, what's the components that you think are the are the most vital? What what things would you look at if you're um, if you're describing to someone uh, things that they should be considering, be it suspension or tires, etc.? Absolutely, number one is the rear shock. The rear shock that comes with bikes is adequate for solo for about fifteen thousand kilometers, twenty thousand kilometers, and then it's toast. You load it up with luggage and put a passenger on the back and it's a joke. And most people don't understand that or realize it until they put a good shock on and then they go, oh, that shock was junk. Uh, so my, my first recommendation is buy a good shock and put it on. That's the first, first thing. From there, it's make sure you've got luggage that you like, whether it's hard or soft, it really doesn't matter. It's personal preference again uh, for primarily road to up, then I would definitely say hard luggage for primarily off-road, like riding across Canada on the Trans-Canada Trail, I definitely go soft luggage. Um, from there, a lot of personal preferences, but mostly keep it simple, don't put too much stuff on it. Uh, as motorcyclists, we have a bad habit of trying to make the bike perfect, and perfect means more gadgets, and more gadgets means more money and more weight and more things to break. So keep it simple. The, the closer to standard it is, the better. I mean, there's things you need to fix, and there's things that are just aren't right for serious riding off-road or long-distance touring you have to change. But really think about what needs to be changed as opposed to, ooh, that's a neat toy, I want it. There's, there's a big difference. You've got to be careful. We talked in depth about a lot of things, but one of the things we covered was extended range gas tanks and whether they were worth the money because, I mean, they're extremely expensive to buy for your bike. I even kept the stock gas tank because they found it was just better to get a, buy a gas can when they needed the more, a longer range. Yes, yes. And I will tell people that very frequently. Um, you can buy big gas tanks for lots of different bikes, um, but... Do you really need 40 liters? The, the number of times you need a big gas tank is very few, and you can always buy a gas can. Anytime there's a long distance between fuel stations, you'll find that there's somebody there selling spare gas cans. It might be a milk jug, it might be a Coke bottle, but it's a way of carrying gas, and that's all you need. When you consider that a big tank is a minimum of $1,000 and probably more like 1500 to 2000 for a big tank for a lot of bikes, that's a lot of travel time, and you can buy a lot of 
milk jugs for that full of fuel. On another episode, Grant and I discussed uh, bike adjustment. He does a, a demonstration at a lot of the Horizons Unlimited events where he goes through setting up your motorcycle. And for those of you who've never set up your motorcycle or didn't think that you needed to set it up, you probably want to go and find this episode and listen to the whole thing because there's some great information there. But here I was asking him why we need to adjust the bike. Let's start with why is a bike not set up for you to begin with? Why is my bike that I bought off the floor not perfect? set up for me already out of the factory. I mean, the, the manufacturer built it and sent it out that way, and I'm ready to jump on it. The biggest problem is that they're trying to fit everybody. And when, when, when I do this uh, thing for uh, one of our events, it's really easy because I can show point to somebody and say, you're five foot two, and look at somebody else, and you're six foot four, and you're going to ride the same bike. There's no way on earth that they can make it fit both of you easily right out of the factory. Everything has to be different. Uh, some people are short in the body, some are long in the body. Susan and I are a really good example. I'm six feet tall and Susan is five foot four and we have the same leg inseam. In other words, I'm very long in the body and she's very short in the body. And trying to get a bike to fit both of us is just not going to happen. But fortunately, the manufacturers are smart enough to give us, give us some adjustments so we can make things better. And we have to do that. The real problem is that when you buy a bike from your dealer, the first thing they do is take your money and then they deliver you the bike and you get on and you ride away. But how many people have actually had the dealer say, okay, sit on the bike and let's get it adjusted for you? I'd be willing to bet that there's maybe one, maybe two people out there that have actually had that experience. It's very, very rare. So you have to do it yourself. How is it different from a car? Because it, it seems to me you just jump in a car and you drive it. Well, you don't. Again, Susan and I are a really good example. <laughs> we drive a Mazda 3 and it has an adjustable height seat. She cranks the seat to the very, very top and I crank it to the very, very bottom and change the angle and move a few things around, change the, the tilt of the steering wheel. There's a lot of things that you do adjust in a car, but the, I think you adapt more in a car to the where things are because they haven't made it as adjustable as it could be. I would love to have my steering wheel about an inch farther away. Susan would love to have it an inch closer. Well, it doesn't have that adjustment, so you deal with it. But on a motorcycle, you can make all these changes and you can make it fit you much better. And I think one of the important things to think about is that in a car, you're, you're passive, you're just kind of sitting there like a lump and pointing it in approximately the right direction and tuning your brain out. On a motorcycle, you're riding it. You are in tune with it. You are using it. Um, it's much more of a, a connection that you have with that bike. So you want it to work better, easier, and it can be more tiring. So you want it to make it less effort and less tiring as well. And we can do all of that with some very minor adjustments. So what are the basic areas of adjustment then? There's several. One of the biggest ones is handlebars, getting the bars right, just getting them positioned right. Um, adjusting the seat. Maybe you need to modify the seat a little bit. You can get a lot more comfort by with a different seat or modifying your current seat. Uh, the angle of the handlebars is important. Uh, getting the levers in the right position. And amazingly, the gear shift lever and brake pedal are 90% of the time are not where they need to be. So it's too much effort to, do the, to, to move the controls to make things happen on the bike. So what are the basic areas of adjustment then? 
There's several. One of the biggest ones is handlebars, getting the bars right, just getting them positioned right, um, adjusting the seat. Maybe you need to modify the seat a little bit. You can get a lot more comfort by with a different seat or modifying your current seat. Um, the angle of the handlebars is important. Uh, getting the levers in the right position. And amazingly, the gear shift lever and brake pedal are 90% of the time are not where they need to be. So it's too much effort to do the to, to move the controls to make things happen on the bike. Okay, Grant, I know you do this uh, this demonstration all the time at your events. So can you run through this for us sure. and tell us how we would go through and, and make these adjustments? One of the first things to think about, and I think everybody will uh, connect with this, is neck pain. Why is your neck or just behind uh, the, the lower part of your back, sorry, the upper part of your back, just below your neck, why does that hurt? Usually it's because your handlebars aren't in the right position. The angle isn't right, they're shaped wrong, or you're just sitting a little bit wrong. Um, the first thing to get rid of that pain is to make sure that the handlebars are at the right height and the right angle. So I know you're listening to this on the radio, but I want everybody to close their eyes and put your hands out in front of you. Okay, now open your eyes and look at where your hands are, and I'd be willing to bet that 99% of you have your hands straight out in front, palms down, and your hands are relatively flat. If you put them down on the table, they wouldn't move much. Yeah. That's your natural angle, your natural position. What did you do, Jim? Yeah, same thing. I put my hands out. I had a curve. I was imagining holding the, the grips, but I mean, yeah, I had the same thing. And when I look at the angle, it's straight off from my arm. My, my hands are straight ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody does it. It's really hilarious when I have a big crowd. I got 50 or 60 people in the seminar and you look around and everybody except one person has their hands exactly like that, straight out and flat. Mm -hmm. And there's always somebody who does it weird, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody weird. <laughs> so the, the thing to understand here is that that is where your arms and shoulders are comfortable. That's where you're naturally feeling like this is what works for me. And if you put your hands on your bars now, you'll find that your bars probably aren't quite right there. So what we want to do first off for your average motorcycle, in particular for your adventure bike, is get the handle grips level. You'll find when you look at them that they're often tilted down a little bit or maybe tilted up a little bit, but you want them to be absolutely level, flat to the ground. Once you get the handlebars in that position, that makes a big difference. That'll take out that pain in your shoulder and neck, or should. So that's that's either swiveling the bars forward or back to, to get that set yeah, up? Yeah, just, just loosen, loosen the handlebar clamps and rotate the bars backwards and forwards until the handle grips are level. And that takes care of a lot of it. Um, just doing that alone, it's amazing the, the difference that can make in shoulder pain, neck pain, and getting comfortable. And when you stand up, the grips aren't, doing, aren't changing their angle a lot because the grips are level doesn't matter whether you're standing up or sit down it still feels the same and that's important so once you've got that set and that that's not a big deal um, you can buy handlebar risers as well if you find that the bars are too low for you uh, if you got if you're six foot four then you're gonna need handlebar risers there's a number of them out there they're readily available for just about any bike uh, there's one that is made that I really like you clamp them on, and then they pivot in the handlebars, and their handlebars lock into them. And 
that gives you fore and aft adjustment on the handlebars as well. If you're a big guy, you want, might want to move those bars a little bit forward. If you're a small girl, you might want to pull them back a little bit. But these uh, handlebar risers give you the ability to do that. So that's very useful. So once you've got that sorted out, the next thing we want to think about is what about the levers? Where do the levers go? Now remember the where you put your hands when you put your hands out in front of you? Well, when you put your hands on the bars, you want the levers to just touch your fingertips. So in other straight words, off. They're level too. Straight out. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to be up and you don't want them to be down. Now, one of the things to think about is when you put your hand out in front of you and squeeze, make a fist, now bend your wrist, your, your fist towards you and try flexing in and out. And you'll find that that small muscle just below the, uh, the meat of your, uh, the butt of your hand, there's a small muscle there doing all the work. And if you bend it back the other way, you find there's a very small muscle on the top of your wrist that's doing all the work. If your hand is straight, think about now, feel what, when your hand is straight, what muscle's doing the work? You can actually see down by your elbow, there's a big muscle there that's doing the work now. Yeah, it feels like it's, it's in my arm now instead of in my hands. It's in your arm. Your arm's doing the work instead of your wrist. Guess which one's easier. Guess which one's going to tire out the fastest. Okay? You don't want those little muscles working hard. You want that big muscle working lazily. So this means that you're going to be a lot less tired. Your wrists and hands are going to be less tired. Your overall physical fitness is going to be better because you are overall less tired which means you can ride longer and safer because you're more in control. Now, what about some of these bikes? So when you loosen them off, they're, they're actually pinned in place. Ah, I'm glad you asked that question. I love those pins. Um, the history on those is really interesting. Way back in the 60s, Honda in California was sued by somebody because their handlebar lever or the brake lever came loose and flopped down and they went to reach the brake and it wasn't there. Honda was sued and lost. Guess what? Everything's now pinned in order to be safe. Oh. Oh. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because quite often I hear people, and, and I heard a person at a dealership tell me this, and one particular dealership told me that the reason they pin it was because they knew where to set it right. <laughs> that was yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, what it does give them is at the factory, they throw the lever at the handlebars, and a, a hydraulic machine spins and screws in, and bang, it's done. And when it arrives at the dealership, they put the handlebars on the bike, because usually the bars are off, although some of them aren't. Um, and they, there's a little tiny mark, usually, that positions the handlebar in this place. Problem is that mark, depending on what angle you're looking at, can make a difference of two inches on the height of the handlebar. And it's all approximate, and it gets it onto the showroom floor quick and cheap. Problem is the guy that's actually doing the assembly at the dealership is probably the 16-year-old kid who may or may not have a license yet, and he's putting your bike together. Now, in theory, the mechanic does a full service on it, checks everything over, and makes sure it's right, but I can guarantee you he does not adjust anything because if he's got any brains, he knows or he doesn't know what height you are and how long your arms are and what your reach is. So how can he adjust it? So he just leaves it wherever it was. Now, in theory, when the salesman sells it, show, or, sorry, when the salesman delivers the bike to you, he should have a mechanic there with some wrenches and j adjust it and get it all set up for you. But 
it never happens. No, it's very, very happen. rare. Nowadays, it's really common to see GoPros or any sort of video camera stuck onto motorcycles. People stop taking photographs and, and documenting this stuff for putting it up on the websites or possibly even writing a book. And it's interesting to talk with somebody like Sam Manicom, who he's making his living right now off of his books from his adventure motorcycle travels. And he's done the round the world trip. He's got four books out. Great books, by the way. And Sam and I got talking about this, and he had mentioned that at one point he put his camera away for a week because he found it too distracting. And here's what he had to say. You mentioned putting your camera away for a week when you found yourself focusing too much on the photographs, and it it brings back to mind something I read or heard you say one time uh, about um, never traveling to write a story. Your stories Mm -hmm. come afterwards if it comes up that you want to write a story about that. Can you talk about that? I I call myself a traveler first then a motorcyclist and then an author. And that's how I think about my life. Um, obviously, there are one or two other bits on the side, but those are the, the three key things. And the, the journey is what's the most important to me. The, the freedom to, to see and to get involved and to ask questions and to meet people and even the freedom just to stand on top of a hill and spend an hour just looking at the view because it's magnificent and you may never see something as spectacular as that again. Um, putting away a camera is is um, an easy thing to do sometimes with when you're doing that sort of thing. But writing, if I've written my journal and I always and I want to write a story, then I've got the notes there in my journal. But I don't go out specifically intending to write. I, I don't want to do that because it's going to get in the way. It's going to have me waking up in the morning and thinking, um, I've got to see, get involved in this or I've got to try and find that sort of person to talk to. And I don't want to do that. I want the journey to unfold as best as it can. Ewan and Charlie, they're a perfect example. I have a lot of time for what Ewan and Charlie did. Uh, you know, there there are lots of naysayers around and um, paid lots of money and, um, you know, all of that sort of thing. And they travel with a backup crew and, and so on and so on. Although I think to produce a film uh, or films the way that they have, it's very difficult to do something as well as that, as professional level as that, if you don't have... Um, a crew behind you and I'm sure Ewan's insurance company was going to insist that there are security guards of, or the equivalent on, on a trip mm-hmm. like that but Ewan and Charlie they had to wake up every morning and think well, what do I want to do but what does the film crew want me to do today and I think that that really gets in the way and one of the reasons I admire them is because they paid that price so that the rest of us can see some absolutely magical parts of the world and have motorcycling involved with it. Would I want to travel the way they do? Um, no, no thanks. Um, I'd rather uh, not have the money and I'd rather be able to wake up and have the freedom to make the day up each day. Sam also had some great information for trip planning. For uh, talking about prep work, um, can you give us an idea of the topics that someone should consider when they're planning a long-distance trip? Okay. Uh, From a motorcycle point of view, let's talk about motorcycles to begin with. I'm often asked this question, and I don't think there is a particular manufacturer of bike that is the right bike to go traveling on. My answer to to what motorcycle is... Do you own a motorcycle? Well, inevitably, yes, I do. Do you like riding it? Yes, I do. Is it in good condition? Yes, it is. Then why don't you go traveling on that bike? 
people travel on all sorts of different types of motorcycle and you just tailor your trip according to what type of bike you've got. And there is no reason to say why you can't go anywhere on just about any type of motorcycle. There are a couple of Australians. I don't know whether you've come across um, Peter and Kay Forward, um, but they've ridden to every country in the world on a Harley-Davidson. And what a magnificent trip. And I've seen photographs of where they've taken um, this Harley and really gnarly stuff that um, even lightweight 350 trail bikes would have had a hard time on. And these guys have taken their Harley there. And, of course, you've got everybody who sets out on um, you know, Honda C90s and 125s and all of those sorts of things. I think you tailor your trip according to what your bike will allow you to do and what you want out of your journey there is no proper bike um you know if i was going to ride the length of africa again for example would i take libby um my bike's called libby by the way because that's short for liberty because that's what she gives me um would i take her again well you know she's got two hundred seventy-five thousand miles on the clock now and why not if I was just going to ride Africa, then I would be looking at the type of road conditions that I wanted to specialize in. Would I want to do as much off-roading as I possibly could? Then I may well choose a lighter weight bike uh, to do it on. If I was going to do the usual mix of pothole asphalt and gravel and um, a little bit of sand and a little bit of mud and all those sort of things, then yeah, actually I probably would. Uh, she's a great bike. Out of the, the whole eight years, I rest. I guess about five percent of the time, she wasn't a good bike to be riding, but the rest of the time she was either perfectly adequate, okay, or brilliant, and that's a fine percentage for me. So first of all, choose your bike. Um, the next thing is learn a little bit about the cultures of the countries that you're going to. A little bit of understanding about the places where you're going will help you to learn an awful lot more from the people. It's very easy to offend people in some countries. Like, for example, in Vietnam, you never touch somebody on the shoulder because that's a real insult. In Thailand, you never show the bottom of your foot because that's a real insult. So you learn about things like that. There are some countries where sticking your thumb up as if you were hitchhiking, that's uh, one of the worst insults that you could possibly give. So learn those sorts of things about a culture, learn a little bit about the history of the places because then when you're visiting a temple and so on, then you've got a grasp on it which will mean that you're not just seeing, you're understanding a little bit, you're feeling um, a, a little bit. So yeah, learn something about the cultures. One of the key things is learn about the weather patterns of the places that you're going to. There is, for my mind, nothing worse than hitting sub-Saharan Africa when the main rainy season starts. Gravel roads can turn into just complete quagmires and every day is a hot, sweaty battle. And why would you want to do that if there are other months of the year when you could be there and it's relatively cool and the roads are dry and the, the land is um, freshly watered from the last rain so everything's lush and green? You know, that's the difference that checking out the weather patterns can make. Visas, they're really good things to do your research on. And what I mean by that is that some of them start the moment they're issued to you by the embassy. And I know people have been caught out by that. You know, they think, oh, well, I'll drive to X land and I'll get there and I've got three months. But actually what they haven't realized is the two months that they've been riding to get to X land, 
their visas already been ticking. So all of a sudden they've only got a month there and it's not long enough for anything like long enough for what they want to do. Some visas, of course, start the day that you go across into the country. And there are all sorts of other visas, visa opportunities. I'm, I'm a great believer in um, working as you go. Getting work permits in some countries is incredibly, incredibly difficult, but getting work permits in, permits in other countries, depending on your age, is a lot easier. For example, for many nationalities, working in Australia, if you're under a certain age, I think it's under 30, uh, it's a relatively straightforward process to get a work permit. And of course, as soon as you can work in a country, you're learning so much more about it because you're normally working alongside people, nationals. And sometimes working for a couple of weeks here and a couple of weeks there, that's actually a really healthy thing to do because you can get on intake overload when you're traveling and you can come a little bit jaded. So you end up thinking about getting to the end of the day instead of everything to do with the journey between where you started that day and where you ended up. So visas are well worth doing some research on, but also things like inoculations, getting those right are, are really important too. There is no real reason why you should be getting majorly ill in a lot of the countries so long as you've had the right inoculations and so long as you're sensible while you're traveling. And by sensible, I mean, well, if you're going to eat in a local um, restaurant, then look and see if there are lots of locals eating there, then the chances are it's a fine place to be eating. Uh, they know which places give you a stomach upset and which places don't. So yeah, for me, those are the, the key things. Well, and going with things to consider when planning a trip, I asked Sam about camping gear. Camping as much as you have from a motorcycle, you've obviously developed some habits that work for you or, or have some ideas or even items that, that work for you very well. Do you have um, some of those you could tell us about? Well, the first thing is a decent tent. Um, if if there's one of you, then um, a large two-person tent. If there are two of you, then definitely a three-person tent. It's going to be your home. It's got to be somewhere that you can sit up inside. It's got to have mosquito netting on both ends so that you can have a draft going through it when it's really hot. Um, I always go for at least a three-season tent because I want to be able to camp wherever I find myself and in whatever conditions it's well worth spending the money on a decent tent. Likewise, um, a good sleeping bag. Um, always either a three-season or a four-season sleeping bag. Um, you know, if it's cold, you're going to be really happy. And even in hot countries, there's altitude, and you can be really cold in the desert, for example. Uh, if it's hot, then don't, don't, don't use it. Um, we always carry cotton or silk sleeping bag liners with us, and they're, they're great when it's really hot. A decent sleeping mat, that's also very, very good. If you're going to aim for somewhere where you're going to have a lot of cold weather, then I'm a, a big advocate of downfilled sleeping bags. The difference that they make in temperature uh, retention for you is, is quite phenomenal because, of course, you lose most of the heat in your body when you're camping through your sleeping mat and into the ground. Um, if you haven't got a, a down sleeping mat, then, um, yeah, well, just go to the local supermarket and get some cardboard boxes and stick those underneath you. That, uh, it makes a phenomenal difference. I think one of the other things is um, having a petrol stove. You've inevitably got fuel with you, so there's nothing worse than having to spend ages trawling around trying to find gas cylinders when you've got petrol So and the bulk of carrying gas. Why do it when you can carry uh, when you've got your, your petrol with you all of the time. I think if you can, if you can sleep well and you can eat well, then you're going to travel in, in the healthiest and best frame of mind. 
uh, we always make sure that we set off the day with a hot drink inside us and a meal inside us. Uh, by meal, I mean a bowl of muesli, for example. I know some people just get up and, and travel, but I like to be ready for the unexpected. And if we've got a hot drink inside us and um, uh, some food inside of us, then basically we can keep going through just about whatever the road um, throws at us until we find somewhere comfortable that we want to have lunch. Birgit and I always use um, a stainless steel thermos flask and it's got a, a liter of, of water in it. And uh, one of the things we do in the evening is we'll boil a load of water and we'll fill the thermos flask with that. And then first thing in the morning, we'll be making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee as we're getting ourselves packed up. And while we're getting packed up, then the billy's on the boil for filling that thermos. And so uh, when we're traveling through the morning, we've got hot water ready for the next cup of coffee. And uh, yeah, it's I like the freedom that that can give you. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's probably um, the best tips. Financing your motorcycle adventure is obviously a paramount concern for everybody. And I was speaking with Graham Field about many things in one particular episode. One of the things we talked about was how to finance your trip. Because interestingly, Graham Field actually financed one of his trips through winnings he got from a, a television appearance. And we talked about how you should finance your trip. That's a really big thing. Can you talk about how you finance your trips? Yeah, um, I, I wonder that too. I mean, what I do are three-month trips, three-and-a-half-month trips, about 100 days. That, for me, is the perfect amount of time. After three-and-a-half months, I think you perhaps get start getting a little bit complacent. Beautiful architecture, stunning mountains, deserts, palm trees. They start to lose their thrill a little bit, I think, after three-and-a-half months. And it's perhaps time to go back home and go back to a working life where... Um, uh, you appreciate what you've seen all the more. Um, so I wonder too, when these people go off for three, four year round the world trips, how the hell they finance it. Well, the first one was financed by the winnings of a game show. Obviously, that's not an option to, for everybody. But still, like I say, and I'll just stick with pounds now, it was a £5,000 budget. So it's not an unthinkable amount to save. And the second trip was exactly the same, 100 days with a five grand budget. I think, you know, especially you know, people around here love to drive around in their big four by four cars, have their bloody great TVs on their walls and say how lucky I am. Well, I drive around in a shitty little van and I don't even have a TV. So it's all about priorities. I prioritise my life. I shop out the bargain basement reduced section of the supermarket because I get a lot more pleasure. That money will go a lot further on the road than it does buying into these material items that really only end up owning you anyway. And if they really give you that much pleasure, then how come you have to upgrade them to the next one when it comes out? So it can't really be a satisfying lifestyle. So to get back to your point, five grand is not an unthinkable amount of money to save if you choose to prioritise your income to saving for a trip as opposed to buying into the latest products, iPhones, whatever. Um, so it's not a huge budget, but also, as I said earlier, it's not a huge endurance test for me because sometimes you just need a hotel. I'm not going to be a martyr and camp in wet clothes in pissing rain night after night. I'm not going to... Uh, deny myself some luxuries when I just need them. I mean, I'm 48 now and I'm not as hardcore as I used to be. Sometimes you just need some comfort, you know? <laughs> 
I just mentioned about talking with Sam Manicom about um, should we record our trips and sponsorship and all that sort of thing. And, and this is what Graham had to say about sponsorship for trips and raising money through, um, well, obligations. Nowadays, a lot of people are looking to go on their, their whatever adventure, but th- in this case, particularly motorcycle adventure. And um, before they go, they're trying to find sponsors. They're talking about filming. They're talking about writing a blog, possibly uh, doing a book. It's very much in a lot of people's minds when they're planning trips for themselves how do you feel about sponsored versus personal trips uh for me i wouldn't do it um the reason why i in the first book i mentioned a couple of austrians who i met who were fully sponsored from bikes to laptops to their phones and their phone calls they had a camera with a lens which cost more than my entire trip costs now that looks great on the face of it these guys are basically getting paid to do a trip from austria down to china spectacular what could be wrong well what was wrong was they had huge obligations to their sponsors to achieve this they also having set off together realized that they actually didn't like each other that much but were obliged to stay together because that was the package that they sold to the sponsors they also had to do all these places there was no room for uh, changing their plans they had to do what they said they were going to do and ultimately they were conditioned to blog and email and what have you so when we there was one particular place in Kazakhstan um, where we were in this fabulous little town for a night we were offered to go off for a tour with this local in his car go to a nightclub go to a restaurant but they sat in under the fluorescent lights in a gaudy internet cafe fulfilling their obligations and writing their blogs so to the sponsors because that's what they had to do they were missing the trip because they were doing what they had to do to get on the trip in the first place sponsorship is a ball and chain it's be aware when you're given all this stuff that it isn't free it comes with a price and surely the point of getting off on your bike and riding is to escape all the restrictions and all the confines that we have when we're at home living our normal lives and so I'm I'm not really that's why my trips are affordable prices and, and of the length they are, because I can afford that. And I'm not obligated to anybody to do to deliver anything from those trips. So, yeah, sponsorship. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. As I said at the beginning of this episode, we've covered a lot of things on Adventure Rider Radio, and some of the technical aspects we covered are, are pretty in-depth. They can be done well um, with audio. And This excerpt is from uh, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited talking about chain adjustment. Let's start with talking about why a chain needs to be adjusted. The biggest problem is that the chain itself is hundreds of bushings. You know, the average chain is around 110 links. Every one of those links is a bushing, and it doesn't take much wear on each individual one to uh, equate to a result of a stretched chain. So the chain gets longer and longer and longer as it wears. That's normal. Modern chains are pretty good. They're well lubricated, and they last pretty well, but they still do stretch. Second problem is the swing arm The way it works, it moves up and down and changes the length of the chain from the sprocket to the rear wheel. So you get constantly changing lengths and stresses, and if it's not adjusted properly, the chain can get yanked and stretched pretty hard, and that wears it very fast. So when we're setting it up, what we're really doing is we're setting up clearances or setting up an allowance for that swing arm, right? And and as it wears, we're adjusting for that chain getting longer, so to speak. That's right, yeah. The chain and the sprockets also wear as well. The sprockets don't wear at quite the same rate, and if you replace your chain once a week, you'll find that the sprockets will last almost forever. It's the chain actually getting longer 
and the sprockets not changing the distance between the tooth that causes wear on the sprockets. Now, just as not all motorcycles are created equally, all motorcycles will have different specifications for the slack in their chain. Now, I did recently read one article that gave a standard amount of slack for all motorcycles of, I think it was 15 to 25 millimeters, but that can't be right, can it? No, it can't. Uh, what is correct about that statement is that if you have a rigid suspension system where the rear wheel doesn't move up and down so that the chain distances between the two sprockets never changes half an inch or 15 to 25 millimeters, I wouldn't, I would actually 25 millimeters is pushing, I'd say 15 to 20, is correct. The correct slack for a fixed position chain is 15 to 20 millimeters, half an inch, three quarters of an inch. That's correct. But for every motorcycle, it's absolutely wrong. There is no motorcycle that that is perfectly correct for, unless you do it at the point where the front sprocket, the swing arm pivot, and the rear axle are in a dead straight line. And that's where people go wrong. If you check the chain adjustment, it's half an inch, 15 millimeters. As it's sitting there, that's great, except that it's not, because as soon as you push down on the suspension, their rear wheel actually moves farther away from the front sprocket, which takes up all of that slack. So you can have a bike that's got lots of rear suspension travel, and at a relaxed position, you've got 15 millimeters of play. Wonderful. Push down on the suspension, and it's tight as a bowstring. And you've just destroyed your chain and possibly the front uh, transmission sprocket bearing. And that's really expensive because you've got to take the motor part to do that. And what if we're running it too loose? Too loose is... Not as big a problem as running it too tight. Running it too tight is absolutely a no-no. Too loose, well, if it's a little loose, it's going to flap around, it's going to hit things, and it's going to catch and wear, but it's not fatal in any way. It's just too loose, and it can cause wear marks on various things. I mean, if it's dragging on the ground, we have a different problem, and you'll find that the bike has more snatch. In other words, you shut the throttle off, and there's a big lurch as the chain catches up. So you don't want it loose because that makes the bike unpleasant to ride, but it's much better to have it loose than tight. If in doubt, go loose. And just to be clear, everyone realizes if it's really loose and it comes off, that could be obviously something very, very serious. Oh, yes. that's yeah. You could lock up the front sprocket. You could lock up the rear sprocket. You can lock up the whole wheel. That can get really ugly. Don't ask me how I know. I interviewed Ryan Pyle, who is a TV personality in China. He's actually a Canadian, but he lives in Shanghai now and is well known for his television series on adventure in China. And I talked to him about his uh, trip that he did around the outside of China, and he got a Guinness book record for that. This is me talking to him about uh, fuel availability in China and large bikes on freeways. The BMW F800GS uses premium fuel. What was the fuel quality availability in China? <laughs> That's a really great question. So, um, of course, in the big cities where, where people drive BMWs and Audis and nice, you know, nice cars and things like that, uh, fuel quality is no problem at all. But once you get out into the sticks, we had a lot of problems with fuel quality. Um, and uh, we, pre we pretty much just had to put whatever fuel we could find into the bikes. Um, we didn't have any pills, you know, to, to help, um, you know, make the fuel better. We didn't, at one stage in Tibet, we were using a woman's nylon, a woman's stocking, um, to help filter all the shit out of the gas that they were putting in the fuel uh, because we did have some bad fuel in Tibet. But for the most part, we were we were using decent fuel, but just at a lower grade, not not as premium as you'd like it to be. But we were lucky when we did finish the trip, we did have the bike stripped down and, and 
and kind of assessed and things like that and um, and fixed up and and the guys you know said you know the the poor quality fuel uh, didn't hurt the bike um, in any way shape or form actually so we, we thought we were quite lucky on that I read in a trip report once that um, in China or at least certain areas in China motorcycles weren't allowed on the highway because mainly they're small bikes and they can't keep up with traffic is that still the case yes that is still the case and this is actually one of the things that makes riding motorcycles in China very unfortunate so um, in China you can't ride a motorcycle on the highway so if for example if you wanted to go from Toronto to you know London Ontario you get on the 401 you know QEW you work your way so those options are not available in China with a motorcycle you'd have to use back roads there'd be stoplights there would be lots of traffic um, all this kind of stuff and then China actually has this brilliant network of brand new highways uh, that they've been spending the last 20 years building because this country's infrastructure is, is world-class and um, and they're all toll roads and they're all like four lanes and they just go everywhere and they're beautiful um, but they don't allow motorcycles and, and you're right it's because 99.9 percent of motorcycles in China are still the 125 cc urban commuter version and having those on a highway with a whole bunch of you know BMWs and Volkswagens that are going 120 kilometers an hour uh, is just way too dangerous. So this this whole concept of having a real motorcycle that can do you know 120 kilometers an hour on a highway with a car in a safe you know in a safe environment still hasn't really caught on here yet. And and that's made it quite hard you know for myself in Shanghai. Shanghai is a city of 25 million people, and if you want to go out for a bike ride, you know, on the weekend, you know, the best way to get out of any city is just jump on the highway. Um, but that's, that's not available. So you end up slogging your way through, you know, back roads and back alleyways, you know, for the first two or three hours. And then finally you get out to some open roads or some hills or, you know, some twisties up in the, up in the mountains. Um, but you got to slog through that two, three hours, which would, which would otherwise be a 20 minute ride on a highway. Um, and that, that kind of, makes you angry after a while so it kind of lessens the excitement a little bit simon and lisa thomas have been on the road for 11 or 12 years now they originally left on an 18 month adventure and ended up selling everything off or sending notes back home and saying send everything off and send us the money we're going to keep traveling thank you very much they're still on the road now when i connected with them for this interview they were in mexico enjoying the heat And of course, somebody with this much, or two people with this much riding experience, they got to have an idea of what is the ideal bike. It's like the holy grail of questions for the adventure rider, isn't it? It's the one everybody sits around and talks about. What is the ideal bike? Well, here it is, right from the beaches of Mexico. I mean, tell everyone to quieten it down in the room that you're in right now. Move close to the speaker. This is the ideal bike. We get asked a lot about the ideal bike choice. I think people are surprised by my answer. The ideal bike choice is whatever turns you on. Um, if you if you plan to ride a bike because of all the sensibilities of a decision, the the practicalities of well, I can do this and do that, it's not it's not going to work in the long term. You've got to make you've got to make sure that no matter how ill you are, how tired you are, whatever the circumstance may be, that you genuinely want to throw your leg over that machine every single day. Whether it's a Goldwing, a BMW, or you know a a 90cc like posty bike. C90. Yeah. As long as you want to get on that bike, that's that's the motivating factor to, to for, for bike choice. Because if you if you make your journey long enough, 
no matter where you are, no matter how long you go for, sooner or later, it will break down. You are going to have to repair it. You are going to have to fix it. No motorcycle journey ever finished because a bike broke down. They finished because the rider decided not to fix it that one last time. So you've got to, you've got to make sure you make a sensible decision, but make sure that you're making the decision from the heart. Whether it's a Harley, a BMW, a KTM, it doesn't matter. But mainly our restrictions were at the period of time. Simon's is a 1999. We bought it. We could not afford to change it. Um, I had to change mine, and there wasn't a lot around for me at that oh, time. Oh, everyone's reading so much into that. What? Well, we had to change mine. Yes, we yes. did. Of course yes. we did. We had yes. to. And, and Simon has an opinion, and I've given it to him. That's all there is to it. So, um, yeah, so that, was, that, was, that was the bike choice. I mean, and again, the sensible answer also is that we've done a little bit of research, spoken to friends, and from what we could tell, um, and I think it's still the case today, um, the BMW engines are still the most robust, reliable engines out there. And in case anyone's wondering, no, BMW are not a sponsor. Um, if they were, you wouldn't be riding a 1999. You'd have a new one. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, there's, there's, been some, there's been some adaptations, and people look at Simon's bike. No, I mean, if, if BMW is sponsoring you, they would want you to ride with their newest thing. They don't want you to tell people they can go buy an old one. They want them to buy a True. new one. They would, yes. True. And yeah. BMW, if you're listening to this, we will happily take your phone call. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it just just the engines, uh, the engines, the, the, the reliability, the consistency and ease of maintenance. Um, I, I've got some experience helping other friends and Obviously, a lot of experience talking to people who repair their bikes, and there just seems to be fewer issues, um, and maintenance is, is, is easy. So one of our big decisions was, okay, well, look, let's, let's get an engine. You know, the engine is the heart and soul of the motor. Let's get an engine that we're going to spend as little time working on as possible, um, and that was the BMW. I think, I think that it was the right choice. It's interesting. This question, uh, when it's asked to travelers, always comes up with the same answer. Take whatever you've got, whatever you, you like to ride. But I could go and ask a, a bunch of other people, the philosophers, which bike is best. And I will get a model and I will get all the reasons behind it, why that bike is more superior to the other one. I think a lot of times what we don't take into consideration is it's not uh, about the bike, really. It's about the journey, is it not? Absolutely. Um, I mean, at the, end of, at the end of the day, a motorcycle journey in its very essence, is not a practical endeavor. Motorcycles intrinsically are more dangerous than, than cars. Um, you can't transport as much. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna do something practically, if you decide that purely your, your journey is just based on practicalities and rationale, then, then go and get a freaking Jeep. Motorcycle riders, what, what separates motorcycle riders is that it is much about the passion and the enthusiasm for the ride as it is, you know, the practicalities and, and making the journey happen. Um, and, I, and I do think that's what separates motorcycle travelers from everybody else. There is this brotherhood of motorcycling. If you have a problem, you can always rely typically on another motorcyclist to come and bail you out or at least help. If you're making all of your decisions based on, pra on, on practical considerations, you're well, not even going to start. Don't don't start on a bike on a bike. Provide you know start it in something that uh, is going to protect you from the weather. Has got air cons, got a heater that you can lie down in the back on. Um, but at the same time, be prepared that your journey is going to be potentially less eventful, um, less changing, less eye opening. 
perhaps I'm just saying less than it could have been if you were on a motorcycle. I love the fact that at the end of a day on a motorcycle, you haven't just seen the country, you've smelt it, you're wearing it on your skin, um, it, it, it physically touched you. It also enables you to be I should physically. like that then, that's kind of good. It also enables you to be physically touched. People don't feel like you're, you're, enclo you're enclosed away like you are in a car. Like Hang on, so you're referring to the fact that you, you and I think we've had more interaction, interaction. with people because we're on bikes. Yeah, people will come up and... I mean positive interaction. <laughs> well, yes, sometimes there's been not the positive side, but um, generally positive interaction. Uh, once people get over the, the, the sometimes the scare that they have, maybe they've never seen anything like you before. Well, they've never seen a male rider with boots. Yeah. Because they are surprised you're They're a girl. surprised I'm a girl, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they feel able to, to come up, they see the face, it's close to close, it's, it's, it's close by, it's face to face, as opposed to being behind a window pane. And being able to isolate yourself totally if you're in a 4x4 four four truck, etc. Um, we haven't got that. You, you have to interact. You have to face the world. Even if you don't want to, even if it's the last thing that you want to do. Um, or maybe you think there might be a possibility of a dangerous situation. You have no choice. And sometimes those situations turn out to be some of the best. No, I think most times yeah. they do. When it comes to adventure motorcycle travel, one thing that can be rather scary for people is border crossings. And when you cross a border, sometimes some countries require a carnet. And it really can be a misunderstood piece of paper. In this excerpt, I'm asking Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited to explain to us in basic terms what a carnet is. We're going to step back here and talk about the border crossing. You mentioned carnet, about having a carnet for your motorcycle. So let's talk about that. What is a carnet? When you enter a country with your motorcycle, that country wants to get uh, taxes, fees for the importation of the vehicle. However, that's a bit of a problem because if they want the taxes from you and you had to pay the taxes in a country like Egypt where the import duty for a motorcycle is 300% of the value of the bike, that's a problem. If you've got yourself a $20,000 GS, you don't really want to give the Egyptian border crossing $60,000 in cash. That's probably a difficult thing to do. And then you have to trust them when you leave to hand you the $60,000. I don't think that's going to happen. So the carnet came into being, I think, in the 20s, based out of Switzerland, for the purpose of guaranteeing to the country that you're entering that they have your money, and if you leave the vehicle in the country, they will pay the import duty. So it's a guarantee to the country that they will get their money. It's as simple as that. So you have to get a carnet, and in order to get a carnet, you have to post a bond or post a cash bond or buy an insurance system that will pay for the carnet. For instance, for North Americans, it's quite straightforward. U.S. and Canada, we go to the Canadian Automobile Association in Ottawa, and you'll talk to a lady named Suzanne Dennis. She's the carnet person for North Americans. And what she will want to know is how much is your bike worth and what countries are you going to? If you're going to Egypt, ah, 
oh, you're going to Nicaragua, 10%, you're going to some other country, it's 5%, and so forth. Every country has a different importation duty that they require. So you will then work out the value of your bike. You need to have the correct value of your bike. She's been around this game a long time. She gave us our carnet way back in 1987, so she knows what the values are. So give her the value of your bike. She'll work out the duties that it's going to be and tell you, okay, you've got your value because worth this much. <clears throat> You're going to these countries. This is what the carnet is going to cost. You can post a bond and you can do it through your bank. And the bank has gives them a guarantee and the automobile association has basically their money, their, their hands on the money. You can't touch the money until the carnet is released. Or you can buy insurance and there's a fee to do the documents, which is I think about $300 if I remember rightly, to actually do the paperwork and make it all happen. And then the insurance fee varies depending on the value of the bike, but it's gonna be in the $300 to $800 range very roughly for a carnet for a year. And make sure you understand that when you return with the bike, you clear the carnet by bringing the bike back to your home country. Importing it into your home country and getting the carnet stamped in your home country is the guarantee that the bike is not in Egypt because Egypt is known for claiming that the bike is there and it's not. So you have to make sure that you bring the bike back into your home country and get it stamped by the customs authorities, send the document back to Suzanne and she will clear the carnet and you get your money back, except for the fee. A great nugget of information again from Grant Johnson. And if you've missed that episode or if you'd like to hear it again, it's called Border Crossings with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. And the date is September 8th, 2014. Definitely worthwhile listening to again. Just a, a load of information there. Last September, I got to speak with Simon Pavey. And you know Simon from the series with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, Long Way Round. And then there was the other one he, uh, where Charlie Borman did the Dakar and other movies that Simon's been involved with, with uh, Charlie Borman, I think. I had a lot of fun talking with Simon. Uh, he's a super nice guy, and he's he's really non-egotistical. He he just doesn't have much of an ego there at all. He's a real aw shucks, very down-to-earth fella. But he's got a load of information. I mean, this guy is probably the world's most recognized off-road trainer. And uh, I certainly wasn't going to let him get away without asking him a bunch of questions on riding tips. So here I was asking him, what should we practice as adventure motorcycle riders? What are the top skills or exercises that a rider should practice to improve their off-road riding? Throttle and clutch control, critical. Most, the biggest, most important thing though is vision. And, and you know, that applies on-road or off-road. Just teaching yourself to to look that little bit further ahead. And I, and I think it's something you have to constantly work on, no matter how good you get. And, and you have to be kind to yourself and do it in bike-sized chunks. You know, if you start talking about currently I look, you know, this far ahead, now I'm always going to look that far ahead. It doesn't work. You've just got to try and lift your vision a little bit further all the time and just grow your confidence to not worry about the detail under your front wheel but to look at the bigger picture a bit more. And and also, again, on an adventure ride, it makes the whole thing more enjoyable because you start looking at the countryside and the scenery rather than, uh, rather than the stone that's about to pass under your front wheel. <laughs> um, yeah, the vision is just really, really, it's that old adage with, I think, most 
outdoor sports is you, you you really do go where you look. So as soon as you focus on the thing that you don't want to go to, you go there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something we all you know. I still have to work on it for sure all the time. You know, if you've got if you've got that sort of adventure style helmet, make sure the peaks tipped up nice and high. It's a really silly thing, but we see it all the time. People have their peak down low, and it stops you lifting your vision. Make sure it's up high and just yeah, looking ahead all the time. But yeah, then you know the better you get with throttle and clutch control, um, all the controls really. Just learning to be as smooth and soft as you can be on all the controls. And you know whether you're rolling the throttle on or rolling it off, it's always smooth. You know, smooth on, smooth off. And the same with the clutch. You know, don't don't just disengage the clutch quickly. It's always take the drive away smoothly, put the drive back smoothly. And yeah, the same with the brakes, you know, pull the brakes on smoothly, you let them off smoothly. It's never, a, they're not switches, those controls, they're all there to be used as smoothly as possible. You can work, you know, you don't need to go off road to work on that stuff. I talk to students all the time, you know, you can practice that stuff in the supermarket car park on the weekend. And you might get some strange looks, but ride up and down some curbs and, you know, do tight turns Try and turn around in a car park space, you know, all, all that, all that sort of stuff. Doing that, like classic thing, the U-turn, you know, being able to confidently do those nice tight turns. It's all about vision. It's all about turning your head, looking over your shoulder, and being smooth on the controls. And then when you go off-road, that that stuff, you know, is exactly what you need to be safe. If you were limited to just a short answer for the following riding conditions, um, what would it be? Mud, rocks, sand, water. <laughs> what for all of them <laughs> yeah. just uh, you're gonna do one and you're gonna go to the next one so mud rock sand and then what while water crossing mud is absolutely being smooth you know everything i've said you just have to amplify it just being smooth really smooth um rocks is probably the biggest thing there is picking your line and being confident wheels uh, one of my other instructors has a great saying wheels around they roll over things let the wheels roll you know, and in rocks, that's really important. You just got to let the wheels roll over them, and then it works. Look ahead and let the wheels roll. Um, what was your next thing? Sand. 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 Full gas. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> there is only one solution. <laughs> Open the throttle. Um, and water crossing. And water crossings is, is, is yeah, take care. Really take care. I will expand that a little bit because we we see it all the time with people new to off-road. You know, they'll ride really cautiously till they get to a deep puddle and then suddenly they go fast. When you can't see what's under the water, you have to go slow and take care. It's so easy to to, um, drown a a bike or drown a poor person in water. It's really respect it and take care. Yeah. So sand's the place for opening the throttle and the water's the place to roll it off. Makes sense. Yeah. It's the best thing about riding in the sand. You know, everybody's daunted by it, but um, uh, the sand riding is the, no question the most difficult riding in the world, but it's absolutely the most enjoyable riding in the world because when, when you get it and when it's working, it's so much fun because it's about riding with the throttle open. And I think most of us that ride motorbikes, we like to turn the throttle and then you can. 
It's funny because I think I read an article not long ago from Cycle World. I think it was Cycle World magazine, and somebody was recommending that you actually don't go fast. They were saying that um, that I know you read everywhere that you get on the on the gas, but there's the, this person in particular was saying that their analogy was the faster you go, the faster you crash, or the harder you crash. No, I didn't say go fast. I said go with the throttle open. It's very very no. different thing. Yeah, because what happens, and I, I kind of agree. Is you know when you go too fast, you get to the point where you chicken out and shut the throttle, and then you crash because you have mm. to always have the throttle open when you're going through sand. So it doesn't mean go into it flat out in top gear. It means actually the opposite. You know you start off slow in sand, but you have to always drive. You know if you're going to slow down, you have to slow down with the bike dead straight, dead upright, and slow down gently. And you do that sometimes in order to say turn a corner or um, you know, to to start to go downhill to set yourself up to be able to drive through the sand again. Because whenever you're moving through the sand, you you need the back wheel driving so that it's trying to keep the front wheel light. Every time you chop the throttle a little bit, you throw weight onto the front wheel. That's when the front wheel tucks, and that's when you fall over. So it's absolutely true. I'm not talking about going fast. I'm talking about going with the throttle open. In mid-October, we did an episode called Mondo Sahara with Austin Vince. And Mondo Sahara intrigued me because one of the things about it, I mean, Austin talked about the political aspect of it and going into Muslim countries and seeing that they could interact with, with his people or his group and be happy to see them. But the thing that really got me was the GPS drops. He set it up so that he had a friend go through with a four-wheel drive truck and drop him off caches of food and fuel every so many kilometers and mark it on the GPS with a waypoint and then hand those waypoints over to the group group of motorcyclists as they headed out across the desert. Well, that's really high risk. You're looking for treasure in the desert <laughs> by satellite and uh, anything can happen. I mean, things go wrong. It worked. It definitely worked for him, but I found it really interesting and really exciting, the thought of it. And it made me think, to, I think I'd like to do that. But setting aside the political view, what was the technical aspects of the trip? Because one of the things that, that intrigues me about the trip, aside from what you just described, is the fact that you're using this, these GPS GPS drop points, which in itself, I mean, that's the real risk, isn't it? I mean, what you're talking about is interaction with people, um, but the real risk was riding across the desert looking for these spots of buried treasure, so to speak. Yeah, the um, uh, what you might call the nuts and bolts of the Modern Sahara project was to ride off-road across Spain and Morocco and Western Sahara out to this country called Mauritania, which is the, the next one down on the Atlantic coast. It's about level with the Canary Islands, if anybody um, has been there. I can imagine where that is. And it's the country, uh, it's one of the countries that uh, is just above uh, Senegal and uh, uh, Dakar. So the idea was to ride um, out off-road to the to Mauritania. And while we were riding out, a friend of ours called Richard Kembley, he runs a company called Beast of Burden, who do long-distance extreme motorcycle support sort of thing for extreme expeditions. He'd been out there in the desert in what's called the empty quarter of the Sahara, and he'd been burying food, fuel, and water for us about every 100 miles and marking the locations with a GPS unit. And when we got to the Mauritanian border, so to speak, and entered Mauritania, he met us and was waiting for us. And we did some wizardry with the computers and everything. And he handed over the breadcrumb trail and the GPS plot of, the, of this incredible route that he had pioneered that no one had ever done before and where all of, where all of the caches of the, uh, the buried goodies were. And the idea was that we'd ride all day, get to the um, the buried stuff each night, uh, dig it up, and then and eat and refuel, and that would keep us going for the next day. 
and it worked. It was it was a spectacular success, and it was a template that um, Richard came up with. I can't take any of the credit for that. I was if we just just rewind for a second. I, I wanted to do another trip, but I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. And I had this kind of political agenda, you know, the liberal, the liberal uh, the <laughs> agenda. Um, but Richard and I had a chance. We know we knew each other. We'd already done a trip out to um, Mauritania and Marley called, Marley called Salt and Gold. We'd done that in 2009. And that, uh, so I'd worked with him before on, on a long distance desert project. And, um, uh, and he and he phoned me up. Well, you know, we we met we met by chance at a, a, a trade event, and he just outlined this idea, and it was literally a match made in heaven. Because I said, oh, because I'm I want to do a trip, and I've got a kind of crew. I've got this Anglo-American crew, but we're not. I'm not sure what we're going to do. Um, and he said, oh, look, you know, what, I want to do this thing with burying the burying the food, fuel, and water. Let's you know, let's make it happen. And within about five minutes, he'd taught me into it or less actually once he'd outlined it in a minute and he said how it, how it could work but crucially he said um that at the end of the trip he could he could take a trailer out to mauritania and he could trailer our bikes back from mauritania and we would fly from mauritania back to london that of course transformed the nature of what we could achieve in the in this notional 28 day window so that was it and we we set a date for about kind of eight months later and uh, and sure enough, we left on time on target and it worked. It was a spectacular success. We were lucky enough to have Gabe West approach us to do some correspondent work for Adventure Rider Radio. And he went to the Overland Expo East and met up with a guy named Paul Pitchfork, who is an overlander, motorcycle traveler. And they were sitting down. This is right at the Overland Expo. And you'll be able to hear it as soon as you hear this next clip. And they're talking about making money on the road. Here's Gabe West and Paul Pitchfork at the Overland Expo East 2014. How do you how do you budget for a trip like this, especially as as open ended? And yeah, this is a really well. I have to be very careful. I think when I sort of get out there and and start preaching about you know going and doing overland travel. One of my big things is is I, I say you know the the two most valuable things you can you can bring with you on a track uh, on a trip is the right attitude and a lot of time, because with those two you can pretty much solve any problem. Whereas if you're going to try and uh, do a, a trip, we said we wanted a bike to go <laughs> in the field. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> the proof, proof that we are at Overland Expo is we just had a, a, a KTM 690 adventure roll by for a class that's being held behind us. <laughs> So what were we talking about before? Yeah, um, we're talking about uh, budgeting. budgeting. Yeah, budgeting, so, yeah. You know, I talk about this idea of you know take take a whole bunch of time, but of course time time is money. You know, the longer you're on the road, the more money you got to spend. And so I have to kind of rein myself in a bit because I'm very lucky. I get a military pension, and therefore I've never really sort of thought about the budget, so to speak. I just check every month. You know, am I spending above or below my my pension, and adjust accordingly. So it's a, it's a tough one, you know. Um, you can travel super low. People don't realise how cheap you can travel. But um, as I always like to tell people, it's all about choice. If you're prepared to sleep in a tent by the side of the road, uh, as I've met a lot of people who do, but cyclists particularly, cyclists seem to be on super budgets, then, you know, you can cut your budget right down. But do you want to do that? Uh, the point is you can if you want. You know, there's much more choice out there than I think people realise when they look at their trip. Oh, well, I've got to do you know this trip on my 1200 GSA because I love that bike. Well, you don't have to do it on a GSA 1200. You can do it on a Chinese 250, you know, that costs you know, 2000 bucks brand new if you want. 
and so you can you can cut it down and also the thing i've noticed a lot is where where people don't have the money they are blessed by having the motivation to go out and find it whereas i lack that motivation because i've got a steady little income stream so i've met people who have been really imaginative about how to make money you know whether it's um using their mechanical skills and they'll call up into a garage and say hey look do you want a guy to kind of help out with some of your bikes you seem to have a lot in the forecourt or um this british guy i met he's very handy with his tools he worked in um he worked in one of the ports fixing people's outboard you know just going around the around the, the guy saying look do you want do you want to work on your outboard engine kind of thing he worked in a pub in, uh, like a British-run pub in um, Colombia for a few months. So, you know, you can make money as you travel as well. So what I really urge people to do when they're thinking about the budget thing is just be imaginative. You know, don't, don't create your own constraints because they are self-created and, and in a lot of cases they're not there. You know, you can, you can earn money as you go. You can write, I write a few little articles. It's not going to make me rich, but it's going to help me when I need to buy a new set of tyres, you know, or do a big service on my bike. Um, so there are, there are ways around it. But yeah, unfortunately, you've got to have a bit of money, haven't you? you know, we, we can't avoid that factor. Well, no, no one's, no one's paying many people to do this. No, and I think it's really, you know, you can get a few guys to give you kit, you know, and even that's not that easy. But I think if you, um, if you have a, an interesting story, but most importantly, as I discovered more by accident, you know, I, my blog got going quite nicely and got quite a lot of people following it. And well, and what, what is your blog? It's, uh, it's well, I'll pronounce it in the English version uh, rather than the Spanish version. It's Hawker with an H, www.hawker, H-O-R-C-A, motto.com. And uh, one day I just suddenly thought, almost just as a project, you know what, I'm going to try and make this blog a bit, a bit more interesting. And suddenly I started getting lots of hits and I was able to go to a couple of sponsors, potential sponsors, and say... You know, I need I need some gear. Would you be Would you be interested? Because the blog's getting a lot of a lot of publicity. So, you know, if you if you put the effort into writing a blog, then I think some people would be interested in giving you kit, and especially if you have an interesting story and you're an interesting person. Uh, there, but there are a lot of people out there. There's the problem is you know, quite a lot of us doing this now. It's not such a sort of wow. This guy's riding his bike from, you know, in the southern tip of, of South America to Alaska. There's quite a lot of people doing it now. And now for a completely different approach on financing your travel. Daniel Rince, he packs up his motorcycle and leaves with no money. That's right, his budget is nothing. He plans on making his money while he goes. It's an interesting approach, and it worked. So you finished university, you came up with the idea of um, you were going to strike out on a around-the-world adventure. What made you, or perhaps I shouldn't even be asking this question, maybe it's just circumstance, but what made you decide to do it with the no money route? Well, um, the theme was two wheels, one world, zero money. And the zero money part is just pure pragmatism. We, um, and by we, I mean a buddy and I, we came up with the idea uh, during college and as students, you can't save up money. So we we kind of thought I mean, we had two options, right? We could just go and get a job and save up money is how most people do it. And it's very sensible, because, you know, but we kind of had enough of working on a computer, being in, you know, in offices and stuff. So we, we thought, let's just do something completely different for a while. And, and that's how the idea of making the money along the way came, came about. It's a, a pretty risque or um, at least maybe cocky thing to do to just all of a sudden say um, you're going to jump on your bike and uh, ride around the world with no money in your pocket. In hindsight, was it the right thing to do? 
Absolutely. I mean, it was cocky. I agree with you. And it was naive. And uh, it, it was a lot more difficult than we thought it would be, even though we weren't sure if we could actually do it. We had no idea. We were so naive. Um, but it was the right thing to do because it, it was the best way to travel because you are forced to go out of your comfort zone. You're forced to meet people. You're forced to connect with cultures, um, which you don't necessarily have to if you, if you have money. I've traveled before and I saved up and you know on smaller trips. Uh, and, and I found often that I would just stay in my car or van. And uh, if I'm like uh, afraid or frightened or if I'm not comfortable with the situation, I wouldn't uh, connect. I would just use my money to get out of it. And because we didn't have money on the last trip, that kind of forced us to make the experiences that really brought us further. And that was Daniel Rintz talking about traveling with no money. He was on our episode called Somewhere Else Tomorrow, uh, the movie by Daniel Rintz. And you, you want to go check that out. It, there, in the show notes, there's a link, of course, to his movie. And you should look at that, too. I think he has a nominal fee on there that he charges for it. But it's worth the money. I've seen it. Here I'm talking with my good friend Brent Henry from Quadra Island, British Columbia, Canada. And we're talking about fear of camping. This is on the episode of uh, Solo versus Group Travel uh, with myself, Jim Martin, and Brent Henry. And we're talking about the fear of camping that a lot of people have. And what they usually fear, the biggest fear you hear people talk about is a fear of animals. Yet the people who camp a lot, you'll often hear them talk about a completely different fear they have. And it's not animals. That's one thing that, that comes in uh, comes up in conversation a lot about camping is the, the risk factor or the fear of camping. Most people are afraid of wild animals. And whereas for me, I'm not afraid of wild animals. I'm afraid of people because that's where your problems come in uh, when you're camping is you have to worry about people more than anything. We've, well, as you know, both of us have had a lot of uh, exposure to wild animals. Um, and that's part of our background in Canada. Down in Mexico, I've saw very few wild animals, but there's a higher density population. You've got a lot of disparity between wealth and poverty, which we don't see, especially in the rural areas in Canada, more an urban consideration. Uh, yeah, and it's a totally different thought process. And in November, I got a chance to speak with Nick Sanders, who is world famous for his long distance riding. I mean, he's got all kinds of world records that he's won. And what I did was I went right for the juggler. I asked him for his secrets right up front. I thought, why hold back? You know, just get him. Just go for it right there and ask him, what's the secrets to long distance riding? Boy, the people at the uh, Iron Butt Association would love to get this information. So here it is, an exclusive on Adventure Rider Radio. Nick, I wanted to ask you... Um, I, I really wanted you to, to, to have a, a giveaway. So if you would just give it all away right here on Adventure Rider Radio, the secrets, your secrets of long distance riding. Well, so there's two things. I think, I mean, I'm, again, I'm just, you know, shooting, shooting um, from the hip, really. One is smooth riding, for example. Um, certainly I ride in a very, very economically um, you know, all my movements are very considered whilst I'm whilst I'm riding. I mean, this isn't for two or three or four hundred miles um, in a day. This is for when we're going above and beyond a thousand miles a day. And some days I have ridden twelve hundred and fifteen hundred miles. Um, and you know, you're getting to the very limit of your capabilities at that point, and the very limit of your energies. So smoothness, considered movements, um, economy of movement efficiency of movement really and in some ways you know Jim that, that applies to the mind as well you know 
I think that um, I don't allow my head to get full of bad thoughts. When you're riding a long distance, you can get into all sorts of trains of thinking, which sometimes is hurtful. Um, you know, you've had a row with a wife and you go out on a bike ride and you're not riding as well as you might. You have to eliminate all that sort of thing. You remember, I'm an ordinary guy in many ways, and I suffer from the same kind of stuff that every kind of ordinary motorcyclist also suffers from. And, um, and, and I think the economy of movement, economy of thought, smoothness, this is the sort of thing. Of course, the other ones, the other attributes that you need are a lot more obvious, energy, concentration, um, a oneness, feeling good, the way you ride your bike, um, you have to have peripheral vision, um, and, um, and, 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 and clear thoughts. Yeah, that's about it, really. Nick is not only a long-distance rider, but I learned that he is also very much into safe riding. And some of you may listen to that and think, well, that's impossible. How can you be somebody who pushes the limits for long-distance riding and still ride safe? Well, you got to hear this next clip, and that's why I have it in here. This is an excerpt from Nick Sanders, The Fastest Man Around the World by Motorcycle, uh, our episode that was uh, November 18th, 2014. We all know the dangers of uh, fatigue and long-distance riding, and I understand you have ridden over 400,000 kilometers without an accident. So you, you clearly have a method that works, at least for you. What's your safety stops, or, or how do you manage fatigue versus safety? Well, I think it's more than it's actually four hundred thousand miles, so that kind of adds a bit more onto wow. it. Um, I think the safety, yeah, I think the safety um, thing really is, um, it's not what I would recommend, and it's you know it's not what you should you know you should do at home. Um, sometimes I will very nearly fall asleep when I'm riding. Now I have never had an accident in in uh, in my motoring life, apart from when I was eighteen, when I had something silly when somebody hit me. But professionally, nothing. Um, and, you know, no near misses either. So I regard myself as being absolutely, absolutely safe. Um, I mean, you know, the records and the statistics speak, speak for themselves. And, and I think almost you really almost have to be a pretty professional bike rider to be able to do this. You know, you can't, not anybody can do this. This, is, this, is, this takes years of kind of training. But I can take myself right to the very limit of tiredness, to the point where I'm almost incapable of riding my bike. And at that point... I can't tell you exactly when that happens, but I know instinctively when if I carry on, you know, I could become a danger to myself. And as becoming a danger to anybody else, that's not the case because the majority of my long distance riding is in fairly isolated areas, you know. If I know I'm going through a built-up situation, I will ride accordingly. If I'm going across the Atacama Desert or the Trans-Canadian or wherever, you know, where the population density is low, then that's when I put my foot down and maybe I'll get a thousand miles in or more, that sort of thing. So hard to pinpoint exactly where that limit is, but it's pretty far out there. And as I said at the start of the show, not everyone who's on the show is well-known or famous in the adventure motorcycle circles. We had a fellow named Don Parsons who um, is just, you know, considered the average rider. He's got a little bit different approach to doing his adventure tour, and he was in the middle of his big, I think it was a 400-day adventure that he was doing all around North America. And Don traveled with a truck with his bike in the back and a trailer, and he, and he has his reasons for that. You can go to the episode and listen to that. But here he's talking about using local forms, and, and Don really brought out a nugget get here i tell you for anyone who's trip planning next time you go to plan an adventure that you're going to go somewhere new you gotta listen to what don has to say here because this nugget is priceless 
Well, you bring up two r- really good points, I think, with the the local forums. You know, you can join a local forum, and what that does is that gets you in, in touch, as you said, with um, local things that are going on. You're getting together to do tech days. You're getting together for local rides and, and the camaraderie of, of people around you. And it's really nice to, you know, find a way to get into that community that's right around you. And often, especially in Canada, where we're so spaced out, you could find that, you know, you're 15, 20, 30 miles from uh, the next person who's into the same thing but through that forum you manage to pull together and then the other real and interesting aspect is you researching a trip and going into those forums because i understand what you're saying about you know you go to a big forum like uh, horizons unlimited or agv rider and there's just loads of knowledge there and 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 these people have traveled through you know all these different areas but to get some real intimate knowledge of a local area when you go into that local forum where these guys are doing day trips all throughout the summer in their local area that is a real nugget of information to find that that is a um, just a, an incredible resource as, you, as you've said and you're using that to to do your entire trip which sounds like a, a fantastic tool for people when they're doing trip planning most definitely is like I said it's just opened up so many avenues uh, we could go on to uh, one of these small base forms uh, even myself uh, being here uh, in Ontario right now on my trip I still frequent my albertadualsport.ca form. I frequent that anywhere from uh, three to ten times a day, always watching for people that might throw up posts. One of our uh, folks that are on our form has just moved to Vancouver. He just replied on uh, with a thread that he'd uh, uh, landed in Vancouver. He's moved out there, and I quickly, I was probably the first one onto him, and I said, oh, right on. I hope that you get a chance to do the Harrison Hot Springs area. Uh, the lake on both sides. I'm very uh, familiar with uh, BC. I had 14 years of snowmobiling throughout most of uh, British Columbia. So I said, make sure you catch that Harrison Hot Springs area. And then being that you're in Vancouver, you're very close to Whistler, uh, Pemberton. There's a cut across from Pemberton uh, up to uh, Gold Bridge. And I said, that is just a vast, endless amount of logging roads and trails up there. Uh, you yourself, Jim, like I said, you're from that BC area, so you probably know this well in your areas. And like I said, when people can touch base with a with a person that's in that area, wow, it just, and the, you get an instant feedback. That's what I find about these small forms. It seemed like uh, when we would log on to a small form, uh, we would shut off, uh, go for an afternoon ride, and then I would just click on that form just, you know, jokingly to think, gosh, you know, nobody's going to reply to my request. Like, what am I going to see in Cody, Wyoming? And wow, I would click on that, and all of a sudden, you know, they'd be two or three uh, folks saying, hey, get yourself over to this road, or there's this trail over here, and oh, you'll, you'll love to see this area and go ride this mountain range. And, oh, I just opened up, and it's such fast replies. And that, that, that's uh, the real plus to, uh, I guess, being part of a local local uh, smaller form. Is that, and it would be nice if, uh, I guess, we could spend that time uh, to uh, find them. That's, that's part of the trick. But uh, usually, like I said, we just the search engine on the, today's computers is fantastic. So you just dial in the state or the province you're looking for, and up pops these web forms. I also found an adventure dual sport form for Ontario, but the majority of those rides are up in the northern part of Ontario, not so much down in the populated area on the Panhandle, down where I am. In early December, we did an episode called Joe Rust Around Africa, Woman Alone Motorcycle Journey. She was a really fun person to talk to because you can hear the inflection in her voice when she talks 
she has the right attitude for motorcycle adventure, for any adventure, maybe the right attitude for life. She looks at things in a slightly different way, I think, than is common. And the audio clip that I'm going to play for you here is about us talking about having the right outlook um, and uh, the right attitude for adventure. I think it's the way you say it, the way you tell the story, too. You see certain things in the experience. I mean, like you say, when you're being robbed, usually when someone tells a story like that, and we don't, we tend to not focus on those stories because they aren't... Yeah. Um, the entire trip. They tend to be a real tiny spot. But in your case, it really, it tells the story. And I think it's the way you look at the situation. Most people will remember that in gory detail. But what you're remembering is sitting there thinking the irony in this, like this is just unbelievable. It's almost laughable, even though you've got these armed guys there. So I think there's something in your story and the way you tell it and the way you remember it Mm -hmm. that makes it a, a different type of story, a different type of tragedy story. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, in you know, in the end, it's all about how you um, decide to handle stuff in life in general, isn't it? Joe had had her bicycle stolen from her when she was doing her first trip around Africa. She was planning on cycling around Africa. And I'm not going to spoil it for you because I want you to hear the episode if you haven't already. But what we're talking about here is, again, the same thing. Her bike's been stolen. Her trip is over. She has no money. So what do you do? Well, it's time to give up, right? Well, maybe not. The trip has been scuttled at this point. Your bike is stolen. Great treatment, obviously, from the governor, but you're back at square one again. So this is the point where I think a lot of people say, okay, well, this isn't working. I'm going to go do something else. But what did you do at that point? Yeah, so this is the point where I think a lot of people said, um, well, you know what, kudos for trying out, uh, but maybe you should get, you know, think about getting a real job now. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I decided that I want to start over and I want to do things a bit differently. This time, I think I would like to start over on a motorcycle. Um, the, the interesting thing was that I had never been on a motorbike before in my life. Yet, I, I just knew that I wanted to start over on a motorbike. I think it was because... I think I had this feeling of, you know, there's got to be an easier way of doing this. (laughs) In December, I interviewed Zoe Cano, who wrote a book called Bonneville Go or Bust. And in this audio clip, she's talking about how that ride from one coast to the other coast of the United States and ultimately the book changed her life. Any motorcycle journey changes the the rider, and I think always for the better. It seems to strengthen our love for riding and perhaps open our minds uh, to the world. How has this experience changed you and, and ultimately your book, uh, Bonneville or Bus, how has it changed your life? Um, it's made me a very grateful person. It's made me realize that we have to take advantage of every moment we have. Um, I feel very indebted to everyone who supported me and believed in in what I could do. It's given me inner strength. The trip definitely has given me the inner strength to want to do something else. But amazingly, and again, this is what other people tell me too, is that the adventure, writing the book itself was an adventure and being able to complete it was an adventure. So I have definitely got lots of other ideas. Um, It's given me inspiration. It's given me belief that, um, you know, we can go out and do things. And uh, I feel there is a lot of support and belief with a lot of people who who have supported me before and uh, at this very moment. Well,
Well, you can listen to all of these episodes for free. Just visit the website, adventureriderradio.com, and just make your way through them. All great fun. Lots of information in there. You know, 2014 was fantastic, and I really want to thank you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening in. Well, that about wraps up another episode and the final episode for 2014 of Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin, and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. And if you're in the north and there's snow, well, you know, I don't know what to say. you got to move somewhere warm. Come to the coast. That's what I'm going to do. And tomorrow I'm going to get on my bike. I don't care how cold it is. The water's frozen. I don't care. I'm going riding. I was just out riding two days ago, and, you know, it was frozen then. Cold. But it was great. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Do me a favor, head on over to our website and give us a comment, some feedback. Go to Facebook, like our page, go to Twitter and send us a tweet. See you in 2015. This is Joe Rust from JoeRust.com and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.